if you're looking to build a entrepreneurial company which can expand into different markets and change, you'd almost certainly go for an internal skeleton, an internal structure, and you would actually allow for a significant amount of loose coupling as well as tight coupling so that more deviance or diversity or mutation yeah, evolved in the system. So what you're doing is you're making decisions as more as a designer of a landscape garden in a wild area of the country than you are as an engineer. And that metaphor is important. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi listeners, Sina Heikila here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. Today we're talking to Professor Dave Snowden, the founder and chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge and director of the Kinevin Center Wales. His internationally acclaimed work covers government and industry and looks at the complex issues of strategy, organizational development and decision making. You'll find a more detailed bio in the show notes to this episode. In this tremendous conversation, we start by exploring a frequently used idea and quote from Dave in our emerging work on organizational design, namely that the next generation of organizational design is about contextually unique solutions to emerge and adapt based on a coherent whole. We then go more specifically into what having context-specific solutions mean and talk about the need to build systems which do not assume that you create a rational, objective human being, but which work more in tune with ideas of diversity within constraints, like in nature. Dave talks about the importance, especially for entrepreneurial organizations, to build internal scaffolding, a sort of endoskeleton that empowers the organization to grow and adapt more easily in a complex and rapidly changing world, compared to external scaffolding, which gives a more rigid structure and that could be more apt in times of temporary crisis management, for instance. He also describes how, in the current Nexus moment, experimenting novel forms of widely distributed citizen engagement in problem solving will be needed to face the challenge at the head in terms of economic depression and massive unemployment. And we need to learn to become more virtuous in the process. This process will be highly collaborative and collective. According to Dave Snowden, as we move ahead in this challenging start of the century, the capacity to manage with uncertainty is going to be something we need to build communities around. So let's go with Dave Snowden. Hello, everyone. Uh, so great to have you back uh, on the podcast. Uh, today, I'm here uh, with uh, my usual co-host, uh, Sina Hekila. Hi, everyone. And uh, with a uh, legend, I would say, of uh, complexity thinking and sense-making, Dave Snowden. Hi, pleased to be here. Dave, thanks very much. We are really looking forward to this conversation. I'm sure it's going to be groundbreaking for our research and, and thinking. So, so first of all, as I, as I anticipated, I, I would like to really start uh, this conversation asking you to explode, I would say, for our listeners, uh, this idea that we are quoting uh, often lately of that you shared in a recent uh, conversation with, uh, with some other great folks on your YouTube series on organizational design that, by the way, I really encourage everybody to, to check, that, you know, this quote that basically says next generation of organizing is about contextually unique solutions 
to emerge and adapt based on a coherent whole. And I'm really looking forward to have you explode this, especially with regards to this idea of uh, uh, both, you know, the unique solutions and the coherence that make the, the full picture. Okay. So, I mean, if I do a sort of high-level summary of my position on this, and then we can explore it more deeply. I mean, the approach I'm coming from is complex adaptive systems theory. And one of the key aspects of complexity is the approach to actually working with what are called context-specific solutions rather than context-free solutions. But if you look at the last 30 or 40 years of management science, what you've actually had is a context-free approach. So whether it's business process re-engineering, Six Sigma, Purpose, Blue Ocean Strategy, yeah, a learning organization, um, what all of these tools and techniques do is they kind of like carry out a sort of basic retrospectively coherent study of a limited number of case studies. And from that, they create an industrial scale recipe and therefore propose an idealized model of future organization. And organizations get into this cycle of adopting those, realizing it doesn't work, then moving on to the next fad, yeah, which comes along. Agile is currently one of those. So we went from mission and values to purpose. Yeah, we went from Six Sigma through various stages to Agile and so on and so forth. Now, the reality is if you look at this from an organic, not an engineering metaphor, and I think that's key, the engineering has underpinned management thinking for the past 30 or 40 years. From an organic point of view, there are certain things that we know which are in common. Um, so, for example, you won't get things define the law of thermodynamics or the law of gravity. But within those sort of constraints, you get a huge amount of biological diversity, which is unique to specific ecosystems. And that's kind of like the approach we're now looking at at organizational design. So there are things that we know which are absolute. We know, for example, that um, human beings are triggered by partially blended memories of previous experience in response to limited data stimulation. So that's how they make decisions. So we need to build systems which assume that's the case rather than systems which assume that you can create a rational, objective human being, which you can't. We know the nature of the way that systems grow and develop, and we know that a key principle is how things connect not what they are. So we need to build organizational structures, which, for example, focus on connectivity, not things. Now, having established those basic rules, that actually allows an organization um, to develop in a coherent and structured way, which is unique to its context. And to give one illustration of that, it's actually more important to build and trigger informal networks than formal systems. Um, but if you look at any management technique over the last 30 or 40 years, it's always tried to make the tacit explicit. It's always tried to make the informal formal. It's always tried to create an engineering diagram rather than a more complex ecosystem. Yeah, with wildflower gardens and formal gardens and ponds and drainage capability and so on and so forth. So very high level. That, that's where I would come from on this. Super clear. Um just uh, a couple of reflections that spurred uh, into my uh, thinking while I was listening to you, uh, especially one, uh, how do you relate this idea of uh, organizing with, uh, uh, I would say, 
approaching organizing more from an architectural perspective that uh, designs the constraint uh, the constraints i would say that i would say allow organizational efforts to fill the blanks and to grow organically into some architectural constraints that you can put versus traditional i would say modes of organizing that are more about you know designing functions or or divisions that uh, to some extent resonate the idea of products and services that organizations want to provide uh, so so does this uh, capture uh, a little at least of this new approach to generating coherence in a different way yeah and i think there are two key elements to this one is a concept I mean, we're not sure this is the right title yet by the way but for the last two or three years, we've been working on a complex systems approach to design thinking. And one of the key components is what's called scaffolding. Now, I'm not sure it's the right label, to be honest, because most people, when they think of scaffolding, think of one specific type, which is an exoskeleton, either sort of steel tubing, which goes up um, before you create a building. They don't think of an endoskeleton, which is like the human skeleton. So around which a huge amount of diversity can evolve. And they certainly don't think about things like microcardial lattices and nutrient lattices, which are used in healthcare to provide structure around which healthy bodily function can build. Yeah. Um, but we'll use the term scaffolding for the moment. All right. So one of the work we've been doing is on a typology of scaffolding. And that has some core distinctions, some of which are dichotomies, some of which are dialectics. Um, so, for example, internal or ex- external, endo or exoskeleton, resilient or robust. And then this rethinking of object orientation from the 90s and the realization that organizational units are objects as well as software. And this, by the way, is key because technology these days has a profound effect that really it has a co-evolutionary effect on human systems. It's, it's not a sort of one follows the other. The two are constantly co-evolving each with each other. So, and that's kind of like the, how do you define the linkages? How do you find the connectivity yeah, between systems? So the modern concept of organizational design and software system design and everything else is first of all, use the level of uncertainty to determine the type of scaffolding you want. And also to use the degree to what which you want to scale. So, for example, external scaffolding doesn't scale, internal scaffolding does. Yeah? So you make those sort of two decisions. And then you focus on what are your objects. So that might be organizational units and what I call the rule of 515 and 150. Different sizes of units have different behavioral characteristics. And then starting to define the linkages or connections between those units and the linkages or connections between those units and with the underlying scaffolding or structure. And that allows effectively an organization or an application to emerge as a result of the interaction of those objects around the scaffolding. So it's not that you don't provide structure, but you provide the right amount of structure. So for example, if you have a a non-scaling crisis management team, you might create a rigid external stru- external structure because it's a temporary one. You might define rigidly roles and you might limit interaction because ironically, order is a solution to a crisis. On the other hand, if you're looking to build a entrepreneurial company which can expand into different markets and change, 
you'd almost certainly go for an internal skeleton, an internal structure, and you would actually allow for a significant amount of loose coupling as well as tight coupling, so that more deviance or, or diversity or mutation yeah, evolved in the system. So what you're doing is you're making decisions as more as a designer of a landscape garden in a wild area of the country than you are as an engineer. And, and that metaphor is important. And uh, Dave, this resonates also, I guess, uh, with uh, some of your some of the points that you raised uh, recently in terms of leadership, uh, you know, with this idea of leadership and moving away from the individual and moving into the crew. It's easy for us to connect this with this idea of uh, micro-enterprising. Also, as you, as you mentioned, if you design an entrepreneurial organization, you, you do this internal scaffolding that can grow and adapt. Uh, so, so how this resonates with, uh, for example, the type of leadership that you need to be enabling and you need to nurture into an organization so, so, this, uh, so that this organization can grow according to this new type of scaffolding. Yeah, and I think, I think this, this is actually a problem for Northern Europe and North America because you've had this sort of dichotomy developed between rigid process control And for everything which that won't cope with, the cult of the great leader who just makes these brilliantly intuitive decisions when they need to be made. Uh, and that cult of leadership is deeply problematic. It's, it partly underpins the growth of populism in the last few years. So if you actually look at military units, so let's look at these military units, um, although they have a hierarchy and they have authority, um, they also have crews which are predefined interactions between roles. So, for example, a weapons sergeant outpoints a brigadier in the context of their weapon system. So the role can, you know, roles can have higher authority than their status in the hierarchy. And the key thing about a crew, and these are characteristic of firefighters, of, of aircraft pilots and so on, is that the roles interact, not the people. As a result of which you've got a form of collective intelligence. That's a crew. But also, a lot of the original work I did in IBM 20 years ago was on informal networks and stimulation of informal networks, where what matters is you know the level of connectivity and you can create the coalescent points around which the informal networks will flock yeah, when they're needed. And that's another type of leadership. So I think we need to switch from individual leaders to various forms of collective leadership that make the point that hierarchies of roles are okay hierarchies of individuals probably aren't. Right. And Sina, I know that you, you have a question on this, right? Yes. Um, sorry, no, I was thinking, you know, it's, when we talk about leadership and what type of leadership is needed, I'm also thinking uh, how will people adapt to this within an organization? What kind of, how do you bring people along and make them understand what is going on without necessarily having to take the leadership role, if you see what I mean? Well, one of the ways is not to take the leadership role, but to distribute it. Um, and for example, all right, I, I have six people who work for me who, for various historical reasons, are known as the coven, right? About to expand. Now, I am technically the leader, but I mean, they meet every week, they talk about things, they bring me in when they need to bring me in, and that's actually very rare. They often tell me off and tell me why I've got something wrong. And they largely self-manage and self-organize. And I'm not worried about explicit purpose. You know, I was saying to one of them yesterday, kind of like, 
you know, please don't start reporting holiday and time off because we're not that sort of an organization. You know, we're much more fluid. Um, but there is an intervention mechanism if it's necessary, right? So I think some of the issues here, I think people get too het up about motivation. Generally, if you're having to talk about that, it's because you've got something wrong in the first place. So military units, you know, the motivation is kind of like based in recruitment and in training and focus. You don't find startup companies talking about motivation because they are motivated. It's when you get into bureaucracy and structure that the problem emerges. Yeah. Now, one of the ways you can do this is by heuristics and teaching stories. So I would never collect a group of platitudes together, put it on a mission statement or make people carry it around in a card in their pocket. But I might create a series of heuristics about the way we work and create teaching stories based on people's own experience around them. And that type of approach has considerable fluidity in it. And I, I think that I introduce a new language here that one of the key principles in complexity is called coherence. Um, so it's, is there sufficient coherence for us to move forward? So, for example, evolutionary biologists have radical agreements. Yeah. Um, people like Richard Dawkins has very little support from any geneticist I know, but he's within the coherent structure of scientific inquiry. I and others think he's fundamentally wrong, um, but we don't challenge his his commitment to science. On the other hand, young earth creationists are incoherent to the truth. Yeah, They have no coherent theory, so you can dismiss there's no point in having a conversation with them. So I think we, we need to start to think about coherent structures and sufficient flexibility within that. And of course, the more uncertain you are, um, the more you're going to need to allow more latitude. That's a loose coupling point uh, around it. And therefore, the more explicit you've been, the more problems you've got. The other thing to say on this is if, my favorite example of heuristics is used by the U.S. Marines. And it's if the battlefield plan breaks down, stay in touch, keep moving, capture the high ground. Now, that isn't some sort of, you know, a non, you know, platitudinous statement about if in doubt, be nice to customers. Yeah. Um, because actually, did you try and capture the high ground? Did you stay moving? Did you keep in touch? You're empirically measurable, but they handle wide levels of ambiguity. So a lot of our work around leadership, to be honest, is finding naturally occurring heuristics, clustering them, articulating them, linking with teaching stories, making sure they're verifiable. And using those as a as a linkage constraint within the system to get alignment. And and if you if we zoom out a little bit to to the societal scale, when when you think about this coherence and and bringing uh, this heuristic element that you were talking about, I know that you've mentioned previously, and uh, for example, with work on climate change, yeah, that you kind of need to go to the micro scale to enable people to to grasp and to sort of not be paralyzed uh, about the situation. I don't know if that's the right interpretation, but would love to hear some more on that. And I think this is the issue. I mean, it's, it, what, what we're talking about in complexity is you're dealing with systems which don't have linear causality, um, but they do have dispositional states. So you can measure how the system is disposed to act. So part of the problem you've got with climate change is that because everybody's focused on things like Kyoto and the Paris Agreement, it's just too big. And because the statements from scientists are catastrophic, it's like, you know, if we don't do something in eight years, you know, I was on the conversation with somebody the other night who's in his early 60s who thinks he will starve to death 
as a result of climate change. He thinks that's how he's going to die. Now, at that point, people just turn off. It's just too big a problem. What you need is the sort of micro changes, like, you know, people switching off lights in rooms they're not in and doing something in the local community, which creates a more balanced ecosystem or going for, you know, encouraging local farmers to supply direct. And as those little things start to accumulate, you get a change in the dispositional state. And there's a trigger point on this. It's one of the things we, we worked on how to measure in counterterrorism, ironically, where the population as a whole will accept the sort of sacrifices we need to deal with global warming. Now, just telling them they need to make those sacrifices now means they won't, and people like Donald Trump will gain dominance. So this isn't a, we can't afford it. It's actually, you can't afford not to, and you should have started it a lot earlier. And the same is true in organizational design, which is fundamentally the way the system is, the, the nature of the system gives what are called affordances. Um, which are when the organization is capable of change and when it's not capable of change. And trying to change it outside the context of those affordances is a mistake. Dave, I will try to, let's see if I can if I can manage to make a, a clear question about this. But <laughs> essentially, when you speak about coherence, I'm curious to, to see uh, how do you see the connection with uh, uh, purpose and identity? And uh, more specifically, I would say, I uh, would like to relate this also with uh, uh, the possibility of seeing, um, you know, com- more conflictual uh, positioning, uh, you know, because I would say that uh, if you um, end up reconnecting with the context, for example, with the community or with the region, with the nation, uh, as we are seeing, there are emerging, for example, nationalist uh, um, you know, sentiment um, uh, in, in, in the world. And uh, par- I would say paradoxically, we see them also possibly um, r- relating with uh, protecting uh, the localities and, and, uh, and conserving, I would say, more uh, smaller, more contextual holes like uh, nations, as I said, or regions. So what is your uh, feeling about, you know, the need for coherence and potentially at the same time, the need for, I would say, a more decentralized but collaborative mechanism to ensure collaboration. Are there frictions between the two? Yeah, I think that this is one of the key things. And I'll declare an interest here. I, I'm a member of Plaid Cymru, which is the Independence Party in Wales. But I'm very pro-European, so my identity is Welsh first, European second. Um, because I think you need something at the level of the European Union to handle things like finance and defence. And one of the major tragedies of things like Brexit and the moves to the same thing in Italy at the moment are that we need Europe as a counterbalance to the US, to Russia, to China. It's multicultural, it's diverse, it's genuinely, or at least as near as we got at the moment, to democratic. But within Europe, if you look at it, you know, small culturally cohesive units are more successful. So if you look at the response to COVID, with the exception of Merkel, and Merkel's exceptional anyway, because she's the child of West West Germans who went to East Germany. She's got a science degree. She's an Eastie, so she really is an exception. But generally, you're talking about prime ministers in smaller countries who've actually made the reaction faster because it's easier to get their population behind them to create that sort of cohesion. Yeah. Now, as I say, that's that's a really important principle. So people, and there's, it's like, you know, we know there's 515, 150 limits on organizational side. I increasingly think that actually about 5 million is the limit for a national unit to have enough cultural coherence 
for people to agree how they would work together. So associations of smaller countries within larger groups seems to me to give that sort of identity problem. And part of the problem in democracy is it, it's, and you get me onto key areas of work at the moment, is it, it grew up mainly in the UK, to be honest, after the, in the 19th century, where people would actually know who they were electing as their representative. Countries are now so big that nobody knows who's their, who they're electing, so they vote at party slates. So going back to intimacy within that structure is key. And there's also a principle here called coherent heterogeneity. We want, you know, trying to homogenize people so everybody has common values, common purpose, common principles. If it was possible, which it isn't, it would actually be very dangerous. Um, because what you need is people need to be different. They need, they need differences. We like to drive different cars. We have different habits. We watch different television programs. But you need that heterogeneity, those differences, to be coherent in the face of major challenges like, like climate change. And so that's kind of like the principle. And one of my real worries at the moment is a lot of the work I see in climate change, a lot of the work I see on citizen assemblies, citizen juries, a lot of the work I see in organizations is based on the assumption of homogenization being the solution. Uh, where actually it's part of the problem at the moment because it engenders rebellion and revolt. Right. And uh, and I think it's uh, pretty telling also that uh, your work, uh, to some extent, is moving more into um, the political process and democracy. So maybe a question that I can, you know, extract from this uh, uh, conversation is if you project, uh, I would say, in the, in the near future, uh, let's say 10 years or something like that, your idea of organizing, um, and I'm especially interested in, in to you, uh, I would say, exploring the connection between public and private and citizen-led. So what, what, how is this idea of the corporate that has been, and, and you know, the corporate on one hand and the central government on the other, uh, that has been dominating the 20th century, how do you see that evolving into a new space, maybe, uh, where these three spaces, you know, the public, the private, and, and the citizen-led, reconnect or rearrange uh, uh, around our uh, community's needs and, and you know, products and services. And also it would be interesting to see what is, uh, according to your understanding, the role of technology in this process that you have uh, very, you know, importantly um, reconnected with uh, organizing to some extent as, as the same thing, you know, because there is this continuity between what we have, what we are and our technologies. So how do you see this? Uh, thing unfolding in the next uh, in the next decade. Right. So I think one of the things we're seeing is the boundaries between the state and large companies are going down, and that's both good or bad. So you've got you know large companies like Amazon or Apple who are bigger and more powerful than most nation states, and particularly the way they use technology. If you look at Facebook or Twitter, um, they have more political influence than they should do proportionally. So I think we're seeing that sort of fuzzy boundary thing going on at the moment. And what we're not doing is creating the right sort of legislative constraints around that. Now, I think there's a wider problem here. Part of this is actually about the um, issue of money, all right? Uh, the fact that we mediate everything through money rather than through, for example, indigenous concepts of gifting, which is one of the things a lot of us are exploring at the moment. Um, so I think... I think what we'll start to see is, and you can see it already with COVID, is, is the starting the growth of a sort of 
localized gift economy complementing the national economy. I think, regrettably, governments and international organizations aren't in a position to handle the big corporates. Um, so that's the downside. The upside is I'm seeing evidence that people in the big corporates are actually starting to worry about this and starting to worry about the ethical implications of what they're doing. So I have some hope around that. But I think we're in for a roller coaster ride. I mean, we're looking at massive depression, um, probably starting January, February next year. It's already bad because COVID is going to go on until at least 2022. And people are going to start to realize that early next year. And that has massive implications. Now, at the moment, governments aren't gearing up the economy for mass unemployment. And we're going to face that. So to be quite honest, anybody who makes a prediction about the future is, is going to get it wrong. What I do know is that we can't have everything mediated by money. We need to find ways by which we generate natural constraints on large corporates because they will respond to consumer pressure. And we need to start to create these novel experiments. And we're doing work on this with a whole variety of organizations on effectively novel forms of widely distributed citizen engagement in problem solving. And we couldn't do that before the technology. So that's a positive aspect of it. Um, but my overall response is, look, guys, this stuff is really messy. And the issue is, how do we cluster people of goodwill? And I'll go back to Aristotle here, which one should always do, and certainly in preference to Jung. Um, Aristotle said, we need to educate people to be virtuous, because then they'll make the right decisions under conditions of uncertainty. And that's called virtue ethics. And I think that's one of the big things we need to bring back into schools. And we need to deal with distributed education around that, which is both opportunity and threat. So sorry, I'm, I'm not answering the question so directly, right? Um, partly because I think we're in a, a nexus moment where things could switch for the better. I mean, we're looking to, for example, the link attitudes with COVID, with Black Lives Matter, with climate change. Um, because there are times in the history of humanity where you can make a change and times where you can't. And those sort of things could go well or they could go really badly. I mean, you might in 10 years' time end up with the pumps failing in, in Netherlands um, and, you know, we'd have Breda by the sea, if you know your geography. At the same time, we might have popular tyrannies in America and um, the UK with civil unrest. You might have the Gilead scenario in the US by which Blue states become bluer, red states become redder. These are all quite realistic possibilities. And we need to use technology to make people aware of these and critically aware that they can do something about it. I wanted to come back a little bit to also to your framework that, uh, ha, you know, the what people most people would associate your name with, the Kinevin. I know there's some recent work on that and that you have a book coming out um, and so on. So how has the evolution been given that backdrop that we just painted? Uh, and how how can we look at that tool in this shift? How can it help us? Yeah, I, I, what, what Kinevin is about, all right, and that's actually really important, is the concept of bounded applicability. So different things work within different spaces and different dynamics, yeah? And, and that's the power of it, right? Um, so, and that, that was born out of my own frustration about, you know, having to abandon things which had worked, but not worked universally every two or three years when I was a general manager. 
So what Kenevin does is it allows you to see those differences and it allows you to connect things which appear to be contradictory, but actually will work in different contexts. So that's one of its criticalities. You know, with the Kenevin 21 celebrations, it's been quite moving in some ways. I mean, there's actually a hospital where they have it pinned to the wall of the operating theatre so they can avoid killing people by realising it's complex. So if Kenevin's going to make a contribution, it's going to make a contribution to an understanding of diversity of response and working in different ways. And the nice, I mean, it's evolved over many years. So basically, because it's evolved and it's an interaction of, of science and um, capability and so on and so forth, yeah, um, I think that's one of the reasons why it's been resilient and why it's been used. But it can be used very simply, very quickly without our involvement. But as you dive deeper, it gets more and more sophisticated. So it's, it's a method of saying diversity is valuable, but only within constraints. How do you choose which method or tool you use based on the nature of the system, the nature of interactions, and how do you move forward? Dave, just building on this uh, quick uh, reflection on, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, as you said, you know, we are in a nexus moment, so it's a, it's a tipping, it's kind of a tipping point or, you know, uh, and so I guess that also from the organizational leadership perspective, Uh, you kind of need to approach the the problem of creating organizations, developing them and products and systems and services uh, with an epistemic that is fairly different from the epistemic of the 20th century. So it's more like we need an epistemic posture that is much more, I would say, um, uh, friendly to not knowing to some extent. And also you mentioned this idea of virtues Uh, and uh, you quoted, quoting, uh, if I'm not wrong, Aristotle. And uh, I, I, my, my question is, um, what are, I would say, the, uh, the, I would say the scope of uh, epistemic capabilities and uh, somebody calls them psychotechnologies? How do you approach this as a human, as a leader, the context of the new context of organizing where you don't really have many, much clarity and you really, at the same time, even looking at the crisis that seems uh, very daunting, how do you still, uh, do you think, uh, what, is the, what is the right approach for, from organizational perspective uh, uh, to, to deal with that and at the same time to be productive and, and to be, uh, I would say, ready to engage with, uh, with this uh, uh, in a productive uh, way from the organizational development perspective? Yeah, I think actually that part of the issue here is in, in the way you started is you need to be ontological, not epistemological. So it, it links in with the previous question. So Kinevin is an ontological framework. It says there are three fundamental types of systems and the approach you adopt within those is radically different. Yeah, So that sort of ontological awareness um, actually makes epistemic change a lot easier. Um, and I know you're using epistemic there in a slightly different way as well, so there, but I'm playing the same game. So awareness of different types of system, which are ontologically compatible with different types of epistemic approach are then key. I think the other key thing in this age is what's called epistemic justice, which is allowing people's voice to come through. Some of this then goes back into the leader's perspective in that you have to recognize that the way people will say things to you is based on what they think you want to hear. So again, some of our work is allowing those unarticulated voices to be shown. So for example, outlier mapping would present something to the whole of your workforce, they'd all interpret it, and then you'd look for patterns in the interpretation to find the groups of people who are seeing things differently from other people. 
Um, and that's both important in terms of leadership, because that's about weak signal detection, but it's also important in letting people's own voices to be heard. And I think that's one of the other big switches. It comes back to what we talked about, citizen engagement and increasing intimacy in the system so people are connected in different ways. Right. Um, definitely. I mean, um, so, so, so maybe the question, Dave, would be from an organizational perspective, if uh, given these... Uh, you know, this decisive need for new tools and, and new approaches and acknowledging the nexus that you mentioned before. Uh, my question would be if now in the 21st century, to some extent, we are acknowledging that the priorities of the organization is more to switch, I would say, towards uh, the capability to do sense making at scale, uh, because to some extent, you need to redraw uh, the salience landscape, I would say, for the, for the organization. So you, you really need to accelerate your sense-making capabilities. And I'm curious to see where do you see the friction or the equilibrium between these two uh, missions? So the organization as, a, as, a, as an engine of sense-making, as a way to, to sense-make together collaboratively, and on the other hand, uh, the actual need of the organization to uh, take care of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, for example, as we said, protecting the identities and uh, ensuring that maybe some essential processes like, you know, the production of energy or food or welfare actually take place in the community and in the landscape. How is this equilibrium, to, to your understanding, playing out in terms of maybe also interaction with uh, between uh, local implementations of organizing and more abstract, uh, the, you know, global uh, organizational layers, uh, so that, that that could be maybe an interesting space to explore. I think it's also at the moment it's going to be about survival of organizations, and I think that comes back to this government in, industry intermeshing. So you've got the ones who will survive anyway, and the ones who may not survive, particularly in the SME sectors. So I, I think then it needs to be intermeshing them because I think the danger is people are actually going to focus on survival um, rather than focus on change and, and expansion. Um, if we do get the switch to sense making, then that involves effectively whole of employee engagement. You 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 need more diversity in your sense making process. You can't do it from a small group in, of elite in the centre, and that needs to be interfaced in with the community. So, for example, some of the stuff we're looking at is also looking at um, intermeshing communities with you know you, you find communities, for example, in South Wales or South Africa where you have a total dependency of one community and one industry. So if the industry goes, the community grows, and, but they still never talk to each other. So that sort of, it, the, the complexity concept here is entanglement. You need to entangle people and things rather than allow them to be separate entities. And that's going to be really necessary at a government to industry level over the next year. Can you expand a bit on this idea of entanglement, Dave? So, because we have been talking a lot about this lately, and we also had, for example, we had um, recently Alicia Hennig in this podcast, uh, uh, where she presented, uh, for example, different posture posture from the, from a mindset perspective of uh, Asian um, thinking. You know, that is much more embedded into uh, you know the the, the locally the co local context uh, this, you know versus the, the the western perspective there has been really much about the disentangling organizing from the from the context so I'm really interested to explore more into this idea of entanglement if you if you if you don't mind it's quite interesting I mean there, there, there's 
there's, there's a standard um, thing. This comes from Geography of Thought, which is worth people reading. And I use it a lot where you basically say to people, um, which is the odd one out, cow, chicken or grass? Now, what's interesting is a Northern European, North American norm, and it's not universal, yeah, um, is to exclude uh, grass because the first, the other two are animals. Whereas the Southern Europe, Celtic fringe of Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America norm is to exclude chicken because the cow has got a relationship with grass. Now, in political philosophy, that's the difference between social atomism and communitarianism. So it's the difference is, is, your, is, is the community defined by the collection of individual identities or are the individuals defined by the community identity? And I, I fall into the latter category on that. So part of the, and you see this in indigenous groups, which I've studied over the years, basically, if you feel yourself as entangled to the community and to the environment in which you live, something which is increasingly important, then the decisions are radically different than if you see yourself as an independent actor within a system, which has been the normal assumption of Western thinking. So I think that's one key difference is we need people to get a, an embodied experience and an enacted experience of the interdependencies that they actually have with their environment and with the people around them. And I think, you know, multiple small initiatives to make that switch are, are probably the most important one. And there, there's some interest in the ironies here, because one of the things that we need to start to think about here is that that interdependency is going to fundamentally change some of the mechanisms we have for exchange. And again, I'll come back to that point about the emergence of local gifting communities and so on. So I think this is all going to get very messy, but entanglement is messy. And part of it is getting people to understand that messiness and incoherence are going to be part of their lives for the near future. Now, if you live in the West, you've had a nice you know, the last few decades have been very comfortable. Um, they haven't been comfortable for the rest of the world and they're going to stop being comfortable for us. So the capacity to manage with uncertainty is going to be something that we need to build communities around. And how do you build, uh, or if possible, of what is your, because your work is also very much related to this idea of narratives. And I think I, I find this very You know, this is the core point I think we are discussing here. And also it's really about, as you said, engaging with incoherence. And how do you build a, a kind of positive narrative in this shift? One is you identify naturally occurring narratives and you emphasize the ones which are going in the right direction. You don't try and build a positive narrative. Partly because actually, to be honest, most people like negative stories, not positive stories, because they have evolutionary advantage. You know, avoidance of failure is a more successful strategy. So our work, for example, on citizen engagement is to allow people to generate their own narrative, but then critically, this is the epistemic justice angle, yeah, or the cognitive sovereignty angle, if you want another phrase, is the power of interpretation rests with the people who tell the story. Now, that also has the advantage, it allows me to scale the approach so I can see patterns in the approach. And then we get into this new vector theory of change where you start to say, how can I create more stories like these and fewer stories like those, rather than how do I achieve X, Y, Z characteristic? And people can respond to that. And therefore, what will happen is new, what are called tropes rather than narratives. So a trope is a multiple common pattern of small anecdotal data, which kind of like captures people or are like a whirlpool. So the tropes switch away from populism to interdependency and so on. 
Right. Um, Dave, as we entering more or less the closure of this conversation, uh, uh, I would like to ask you to maybe peek into what, according to what you feel now, are the most important directions where our listeners, which are you know designers, organizational developers, should be looking now in this moment to really be ready to show up uh, with this with the needed integrity to engage uh, with what is on our table at the moment. I, I don't want to say what is coming up because. We have a pandemic, for example, on our table now, so it's really here already. You know? So what are the, the directions you feel like we should be uh, directing our curiosity, our passion, our, our interests uh, as organizational developers, designers? And considering that we are also focusing with people that are interested in this idea of scalable organizing, also really thinking about uh, leveraging ecosystems and, and mobilizing, uh, I would say, for the, for the better. I think, I mean, there's two books by a former colleague of mine from the 70s, Terry Eagleton, um, which I think people should read. One is called Radical Sacrifice, because we've got to start to get people ready to the concept of sacrifice. And the problem with neoliberalism is we kind of like sort of invalidated that. Actually, people in religious communities tend to understand it because it's a key theological concept, along with things like grace. The other book by him, which is really worth reading, is called Hope Without Optimism. So given the sort of problems we face, optimism is very difficult, but that doesn't mean that you deny hope. So I think we need to start to think, uh, and this is not the half full, half empty nonsense. This is basically hope is about a commitment to transformation and change, even if you're not optimistic about it. You don't, you don't give in to despair. Yeah? And that's quite easy in the current climate. So that's like a very high level almost religious concept right in the more ground level if you want to scale something and it's complex you don't scale it by repeating what other people have done that comes back to our starting point or by doing more of the thing which just happens to have worked the last time you scale a complex system by decomposition and recombination and there's a strong biological metaphor for that if you think about it the whole complexity of organic life form yeah, basically comes from the recombination of four basic chemical compounds in DNA. So you need to start to think like that. So if I'm working in an organization, whether I'm a politician working in a country or whether I'm a small business owner or whether I'm working in a large company, I've got some seniority, is I need to work out what's the optimal granularity of my organizational units and my technologies. And then I have to start the process of hopeful integration or, 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 or connectivity between those units so that novel forms, which are more resilient, can emerge. So this is the decomposition and then recombination type principle of complexity-based scaling. And that means a change in software design because actually we need software to be coherent objects which interact rather than applications which are pre-given. And in organizational design, we need to think about what are our core identities and what are their interactions, not what sort of organization do we want. So that's the big switch in thinking. So maybe as a flip side question to this, what do you think could be things to avoid in the current moment? Well, the very thing I've done. So in, in software development, for example, we, we knew that Agile had gone bad when things like SAFE came along. You know that things are bad. I mean, for example, in British society at the moment, people are using the COVID emergency um, effectively to give huge contracts to people who are incompetent, but are part of their, the elite group. 
And we can see the same thing in the States. So we need people of goodwill to call out that sort of corruption because it's more likely to succeed than the good things. So if you don't call it out early, you've got a problem. In organizational space, we need to avoid the sort of consultancy recipe, the sort of, oh, here's the solution. I'll make you agile. Everything will be scrum. And that comes back to the contextual design. So it's kind of like avoid recipes, avoid universal solutions, avoid panaceas, avoid the sort of, well, we'll say we're going to do this and then nobody will expect us to deliver results for 18 months. So I might get away with it type approach, which is also common as management. Yeah. In, and avoid um, disenchanting key staff, yeah, because then they then they won't contribute to your solution. Dave, uh, well, uh, it's been a very thought-provoking conversation. I think maybe more than with other episodes, I will need to we will need to wrap our heads around the, the, the things that you brought up, especially this late uh, this uh, latest. Uh, reflection on, you know, uh, how do you design uh, organizations and softwares, for example, more la- as, you know, elements that can interact and be, to some extent, you know, let the uh, solution evolution emerge and be be ready, you know, epistemically to approach uh, or to work in this new, this new context is really, really an interesting point. So I would like to just ask you as a final uh, point, if you want to point out some of our listeners to explore more of what is in the new book. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, it should be on the desk on any of our listeners, but I would love if you can explore a bit more what is this in, in the book coming up and why it's important. Okay, so I didn't know about the book until Saturday. So what what my colleagues did was to put together, I mean, I was I wrote a 13,000 word article for it, but I thought I was writing something for the website and it turns out to be a book chapter. So that book is a mixture of me talking an anecdotal history of the Kinevin framework and then a whole body of stuff from multiple backgrounds talking about the impact Kinevin has had on them. So that's going to be worth it. It'll be available on Amazon this week. The book, which I am writing with Mary Boone, which is kind of like, what is Kinevin and how do you use it? That's probably still about a year away. But there's a host of material on the website. There's a host of material on YouTube if you search on it. And we are actually, we just put a new website up for Cognitive Edge. We are actually about to start to curate some of that stuff so that people can know what to pay attention to and what not to. Great to know that there's another work coming up uh, in a year or so. So, Dave, it was uh, great to have you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. I did. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Estina, for, for also for, for being part of the conversation. And uh, to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valter Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.